Roman Coliseum of Natural Hazard. This is Frank Harris, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. That's right, you are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control. Safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by Ten Barrel Brewing and Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Hope you're having a great winter out there, staying safe, hopefully finding a few soft turns here and there throughout somewhat of a droughtish winter thus far. Today's episode will feature Frank Karras. And for the last 11 years, Frank's been a snow ranger and avalanche forecaster for the Mount Washington Avalanche Center in Pinkham Notch, New Hampshire. So getting some great East Coast representation on the show today. Um, we did this interview back in the middle of November and Frank will dive into some of the, both his history and the history of the Mount Washington Avalanche Center and how things have changed over the years. Um, and some of the ways that they're, uh, they've changed the way that they've created their forecast to better serve, um, the users of that area. Frank also, um, recalls a couple recoveries that have happened, um, pretty notable recoveries uh, that have happened in the last few years up there in that region. Um, And I think there's some great lessons to be gleaned from those as well. So without further ado, here we go with Frank Karras. Welcome to the show, Frank. How are you doing today? Good. Doing well, Caleb. Thanks. Yeah. I was hoping you could introduce yourself and um, tell us a little bit about your background and your career path in the snow and avalanche world. Yeah, sure. Actually, um, I started out outside the avalanche world as a aspiring rock guy back in college. Um, I'd moved out west after a Knowles course when I was 18. It really kind of stuck with me as a Georgia boy. I was pretty dazzled by the the mountains there um enjoyed uh skiing as well i learned to ski in uh, a tiny little mountain in michigan man-made hill called dense's apple mountain um and that was when i was just a just a lad eight or ten years old something like that um lived my life outdoors as a kid you know as soon as i came in through the front door i went out the back and played in the woods um, 20 you know my every waking hour that I could so the outdoors uh, had its hooks in me so um, an early trip to Yosemite um, 
followed by uh, an article about in National Geographic about uh, people climbing Astro Man um, just really uh, grabbed my attention and um, went climbing with Boy Scouts and then some friends later in high school. And uh, that's what kind of pushed me down the road towards climbing, mountaineering, and, uh, and skiing. Um, became an Outward Bound instructor and simultaneously started um, rock guiding when I was in college in North Carolina. And um, this was after a stint for a few years, you know, in, in Utah. Um, and um, not long after that began guiding um, or moved to New Hampshire, started uh, guiding for International Mountain Climbing School, doing, um, you know, guiding ice and rock and uh, tangling with uh, steep gullies in Huntington Ravine on moderate days and having spin drifts falling on me and wading through chest deep snow um, back in the 90s and kind of uh, having brushes with uh, with avalanche terrain and um, so <clears throat> continued uh, guiding and um, making it work between uh, that and carpentry for quite a while and then later uh, this is like a second career really for me mm. um, joined the forest service um, and switch gears to being a snow ranger we still call them at the mount washington avalanche center that was 11 years ago um, it was a good fit um, i had uh, um, you know a lot of experience with a mountain rescue service there in uh, in town in north conway and part of the mission of the mount washington avalanche center is rescue in addition to just avalanche forecasting uh, which is unique uh, among all the Forest Service Avalanche Centers, except for Shasta, um, who also has uh, rescue as a primary mission. Um, so, yeah, that's what led me into avalanche forecasting specifically. Um, you know, guiding took me, uh, alpine guiding particularly, and um, New Hampshire and the Alps and, you know, spring and early summer hazards in the alpine had me, um, you know, um, certainly trying to do my own forecasting in the field and terrain management with clients and, and, that, and whatnot. Did some avalanche course instruction along the way as well. Um, a little bit starting in 1998 to 2001 period and then got out of it and started teaching some more again, um, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, kind of a varied background, you know, don't have a snow science degree. Um, most of the snow rangers um, in our neck of the woods um, in the east have not had a snow science degree. It's a really have to be sort of a human Swiss army knife in our role there with uh, um, it's really um, diverse skill set required to do that job because of the, the technical aspects, you know, we're all EMTs and have a technical climbing um, background. So, you know, we might, a forecast field day may include climbing water ice three and a multi-pitch gully and, or ski mountaineering, you know, it's very rarely skiing POW and very rarely skiing or interacting with a persistent slab problem or generally direct action. So. Sure. And, you, um, and you're all based out of the Pinkham Notch Visitor Center there. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's where our garage is. Our home office is down there in Gorham. We have uh, a cabin, a backcountry patrol cabin at Hermit Lake, um, where there's an AMC caretaker. And, you know, we um, changed forecast zones um, four years ago to include all of the presidential range, including the west side, Gulf Slides, and everywhere else. And we stopped microscale forecasting at that time based on increased user traffic and just different ways that people were assimilating information and starting to use it in the midwinter months specifically. Um, so we, we expanded that range, which takes us into the field more, also using weather products more for forecasting. Um, and um, then we circle our wagons there in the uh, March and April when the spring ski crowd, which is a historic use there, Tuckerman Ravine, um, when they start to arrive in droves. And uh, we work with a ski patrol at that point to try to message directly to the public and then follow up when uh, messages don't get received or accidents happen and uh, scoot people up and uh, render medical aid. It's necessary to have quite a bit of interaction with users at that time, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is. We have, um, you know, it's a it's a very it's a unique place in many ways. Um, in many ways, it isn't. It's really just a glacial cirque. You know, there's a million of them across mountain ranges in the world. This one happens to be only a two and a half mile hike from the road and within a, you know, half a day's drive of like 15 million people. Um, and there's a really strong history of folks just throwing their Alpine skis over their shoulder or their sled um, and hiking up to uh, interact in this uh, Roman Colosseum of natural hazards, you know, where the lions are ice fall, crevasses, avalanche hazard and Many of these folks um, are either not particularly aware of avalanches, don't really understand how they work. You know, they might be just skiing the calendar, like picking a day. Like the second week of March is always good, right? Because it's been good the last four times I've been here. It's been spring corn. Then they arrive to considerable danger or moderate danger with multiple avalanche paths threatening them. So it's, um, you know, there's not not much else like it you know i think it's it's pretty uh pretty unique zone yeah in addition to that we just have you know general run-of-the-mill heavy use right through the winter um people going to the summit of mount washington with notorious weather and people getting lost and stranded high in huntington ravine you know with rappels or helicopters needed to go and get them um yeah, it's it's got quite a um, it's quite a little zone. Uh, Rick Wilcox, the owner of IME, and you know he's he's led like thirty Himalayan missions and summited Everest in '96. Mark Ritchie and a bunch of other powerhouse climbers. You know, he used to joke. He you know people would call up to get climbing at a climbing school and saying, you know, I want to train to go and do the seven summits. I want to train for forever so i want to go up in mount washington and his joke is like well yeah you should probably climb everest first to get ready <laughs> to come and climb uh, you know mount washington so obviously a bit of a stretch but um i think the point there is like it's a fearsome little peak you know it blows 75 miles an hour over half of the year and uh 
you know, top wind speeds with 230 something miles an hour. And, you know, we had a layer last year that was a really rugged course crust that was built by 175 mile per hour wind. Wow. So, um, yeah, you know, the, the wind is real and, uh, the fetch is real. It's got a big flat plateau that feeds right into Tuckerman ravine and to a lesser extent, Huntington ravine and Gulf slides, you know, that's windward. And, uh, you know, I forget the, the square, um, the acreage, I want to say it's 40 or 60 acres, just up, just, you know, due west of Tox, but it dumps so much snow in there. It covers all the cliffs and, um, you know, we end up with a snowpack that's 30 to 40 feet thick, um, over the base, kind of in the 25 degrees on there. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a unique spot, unique hazards. Um, and a lot of folks use them somewhere in the neighborhood of 90,000 people during that four month period. Wow. And a lot of history, Frank, maybe you could talk a little bit about just the history of winter recreation in the Mount Washington Valley. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it's really got a storied history. Um, you know, a lot of the folks that, uh, took up mountaineering, um, there's the Sierra clubbers in the, in the California area. And, um, prior to that, you know, like in the thirties, there were people pushing things in the Alps that were training and learning to climb in, on Mount Washington, Huntington Ravine and the Schwangunks. And, um, a lot of the early techniques were forged there, like people, uh, the underhills and, um, geez, I'm blanking on lots of the other names, but people were doing really cool stuff back then, um, in terms of the ski side of things, the civilian conservation corps cut a number of ski trails, uh, the Sherburn and, um, a number of Gulf slides and, um, ski way on Musilaki and Dartmouth, um, a ton of different these of these ski trails and um around that same time you know people were starting to head up into the terrain and their leather boots and wooden skis and tuckerman ravine generally springtime generally not skiing from the top of the steepest runs but um ultimately in 1954 post-war during a time of pretty heavy use as people were able to drive in their own cars and not trains anymore get get to Mount Washington easier. Um, the, uh, a ski patrol was born there and then the forest service stepped in, um, and started doing a forecast, a backcountry recreational forecast in 1954, um, right around the time that, um, all the, the work was being done in little cottonwood, um, with avalanche research there, which is, you know, DOT related, but, or a uh, highway related. So yeah, that was the start of the program. Ski Patrol has been an integral part of that since that time. Um, I'm the fourth director since that time. Um, not a lot of turnover for a long time in that zone. And uh, yeah, not sure what else to say. It's a, it is quite a still a still a great place to be a skier or ski mountaineer or or just an ice climber rock climber not a not really an exceptionally good place to be a powder skier though we do get we do get really good powder days um for sure 
Um, we just get oftentimes get these wraparound storms that rain on it or wind that wrecks it. But um, the skiing is, is fun and technical and steep, um, quite steep, you know. Um, people ski in ice climbing lines in Huntington Ravine and all around, uh, all around in all these cirques and the presidentials. So, um, and then the, obviously the uh, ice climbing, rock climbing, super accessible and yeah, it's a good zone. Mm. And so is, is it true that the Forest Service Artillery Avalanche Mitigation Program was essentially founded there too? Is it, you know, they, they started shooting down um, either avalanches or, or ice features up there. Is that true? They did start shooting ice features there. I don't know that that was the first use of artillery. My thought would be the, like a recoilless rifle or, um, you know, one Oh five may have been used prior to that or mm. 75 millimeter recoilless rifle in little cottonwood. I know they were using a 60 caliber machine gun to shoot ice down onto the slopes to try and trigger it with the uh, frozen waterfalls. Um, it, it was the first backcountry program, is my understanding, backcountry avalanche forecasting program. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's just a, a bit of a semantical thing because certainly at La Chapelle and Adams, and I'm mixing up names, but these folks that are in Little Conwood that were, were doing a lot of work were working on it at about the same time. They worked on the Forest Service manual, and I believe some of the folks that are the avalanche manual and some folks who were early on in our program were interacting with these guys. Um, they're sharing information through uh, typed letters. I came across one recently. Um, is it the Westwide mm -hmm. Avalanche something? Uh, avalanche um, Network, I think, right? Westwide yeah, avalanche Westwide Network. Avalanche. Yeah. Yeah, I came across a letter in the in our files here where you know it's a synopsis of all the avalanche activity in the area and um, pretty fascinating. This was like uh, I can't remember the date way back. Was, oh yeah, I was talking. There was a summary of uh, of an accident on the east side of the Sierras where um, an avalanche came and avalanched a car off the road and into a lake hmm. tragically. Um, and then there was a there was a second avalanche associated with that too. But yeah, really interesting history um, of the program. We, this uh, MWAC also had a uh, avalanche early on. Um, used that for a while, and uh, the reality was that the the risk of all these things um, was really just too great, considering that it wasn't an actual ski area, sure. and that it, there was other ways to mitigate. Um, the risks of people being exposed to that terrain and forecasting and that face-to-face -face messaging um, as you talked about earlier were first and foremost and of course the risk of shooting out is i guess it's bad everywhere but certainly when you have low visibility and high winds like we frequently did mm -hmm. shooting mid-storm um in tuckerman ravine just be a bad idea you know if you miss you hit the cog in the mount washington hotel on the other side right so so over the years uh winter recreation has just gotten more and more popular um and so it seems like the mount washington avalanche center has adapted to to suit the needs of the the public recreating on forest service land 
Um, and I just want to bring back that stat that you threw out. Did you say 90,000 people use use that zone or recreate in that zone over a winter, like say last year? Yeah, last year it would be, um, you know, we don't have a super accurate way of counting. That 90,000 figure was during a study that someone did, um, I don't know, about a decade, maybe 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, that use, though, seems like a pretty good number based on total views of our website, uh, car counts, and informal people counts that we do regularly mm -hmm. and um, and then do some math. So the days of um, 4,000 people on a Saturday in Tuckerman Ravine are largely over. We certainly still have, you know, days where there's we're pushing 2,000. The difference, the main difference is our season starts much earlier. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, just anecdotally, um, you know, experiences like uh, remember plowing with our piston bully up into Huntington Ravine one day. Um, a few years ago, we had a pretty good snowpack. It was around Christmas holiday or, or January, early January sometime, plowing in and, and having seven parties of skiers exiting Huntington Ravine, you know, and thinking to myself, you know, five or six years ago, there's like, a handful, three or three to five people in the area that would ski in Huntington or me that had the skill set and would try to, you know, ski something um, steep like South Gully and in midwinter. Um, so our user group has shifted from those heavy used weekends in April and into May um, early and earlier in the year. So you have people up there as soon as there's enough windblown snow and left gully, um, just shredding it, you know, and the chute. And we've had, we're getting human triggered, skier triggered avalanches and zones like that in, um, God, what was it, a couple years ago, like December, you know, um, the snowpack's not really even developed yet. You can really even ski to the, to the road. Um, but folks are, are pushing up into that, um, terrain and, maybe this well it's got to be greater numbers but just spread through the year um i do believe simultaneously there are some folks that ordinarily would be spring skiers who are tapping the brakes a little bit and recognizing you know that maybe bringing you know your friend who's a blue square skier and taking them up for their first tux experience and you know on a 45 to 50 degree slope may not be such a good idea hmm. um so I, I, I do believe that there um, are messages getting out, whether it's through um, social media or interaction with the press or our outreach efforts at um, stores and bars and wherever we can get people, um, where we can get them to listen is, uh, is helping, you know, so. Yeah, no doubt. It's pretty amazing when, when all of our, our, our gear right technology and gear and everybody's fitness levels are allowing them to access terrain that maybe a couple decades ago wouldn't be possible and we it seems like we've kind of far outpaced our knowledge and skills by 
gear and fitness, you know, in, in some regards. So uh, it's interesting to, to hear that you're seeing that um, in the Mount Washington area as well. Yeah, yeah, we are. And I think that a lot of people are getting educated. There's record numbers of um, folks enrolled in level one avalanche courses. And we had, um, boy, I don't want to... Yeah, I won't throw the numbers out, but we had a, a lot of out really good attendance for our outreach events and online as well. And folks are are learning what danger ratings can mean, and they're learning what avalanche problems are. And I think they're starting to really take advantage of um, you know some of the new glades that have been cut by Granite Backcountry Alliance in in the area and keeping it you know. Um, keeping their terrain choices more conservative and, and matching their skills to the terrain and, and conditions. So <clears throat> that's all net positive for sure. Yeah. Um, I think, I think the one thing my Washington Avalanche Center need to be prepared for is just what you see everywhere else is that people start getting educated and they start using that terrain to seek maybe more exciting experiences, you know, start, tickling the dragon so um i'm hoping that people you know that that uh that effect uh doesn't lead to tragedy but um i think we know historically that it, it will um you know, people make mistakes and um so we'll just have to see how it goes sure so frank you said several years ago you changed to a, a zone forecast talk a little bit about uh, the greater area that, that might not see quite as much traffic as Tuckerman Ravine and and uh, Huntington Ravines, and, and, and you know how many zones are you forecasting for? How big is that area? How do you uh, split up the the people power, your forecasters, stuff like that? Yeah, so <clears throat> the um, we switched uh, slowly from the fourteen micro scale forecast areas and two cirques, you know, Tuckerman and Huntington Ravine, where we were providing gully by gully um, danger ratings um, for um, what was it like six zones at Huntington and seven plus in um, Tuckerman Ravine or eight. Yeah, Tuckerman Ravine. And um, we knew that a lot of people were using that forecast and extrapolating out um, to Gulf of Slides and other areas. And we really felt like um, a couple of things were, were potentially happening was one, we were really putting ourselves on the hook to give a danger rating to a particular, you know, to a 60 foot wide tube. Um, we, we got pretty good at it. You know, we were pretty, pretty darn accurate. I'd say generally within a half a danger rating most of the time. Um, the issue was that, um, you know, partly philosophically, we're just making decisions for people um, and not providing enough information for folks in other areas. Um, and those those folks were, you know, all these people were pushing out into these other zones and, um, you know, we weren't um, as capable of providing the information we wanted. Like, so Gulf of Slides, people would occasionally go there thinking like, well, it's lower angle, right? It's not as steep as talk, so it's not going to 
slide. Okay, really? It's it's like 38 to 40 degree slope. <laughs> it's got a slightly smaller fetch, and it's got some of the worst possible terrain trap you could imagine at the bottom, where it transitions to flat in the trees. It's brutal. Mm. So we, um, you know, going with a single danger rating, but by elevation and aspect with uh, avalanche problems, um, we, we thought that would be a good route to go and provide similarly targeted information um, while still um, maintaining really um, our presence, that face-to-face -face presence that we know is valuable in, in that pinch point of Tuckerman Ravine. And uh, yeah, so far, you know, I think it's been um, successful and people have appreciated it. I think our accuracy, the danger rating is pretty darn, pretty darn close to what it was with, you know, um, that whole zone from the ice climbs over in Crawford to Route 16 up to Gorham. I forget how many acres it is or square miles, but um, certainly certainly one of the smaller forecast areas among all the forecast zones and the you know forest servicing caic network but um it is heavily used and very spatially variable so mm -hmm. um seems like a, a pretty good sweet spot right now with uh with just four staff who are also providing 24 7 rescue coverage mm. Any idea what the percentage of users are that are skier skiers and boarders versus ice climbers versus snowshoers kind of mountaineer uh, objective type folks? Boy, that's I would have to, I'd be definitely hazarding a guess mm -hmm. to assign any sort of numbers to that. I can say that skier uses. really really skyrocketing where ice climbing and alpine climbing and hunting can intervene is dropping significantly um, i think that's also a little bit tool related mm -hmm. and gear related you know um water ice three with with leashless tools and uh um you know climb a pinnacle gully is just kind of a cakewalk these days uh, other than avalanche hazard and the fact you got to hike a long way and it's super cold mm -hmm. Um, so folks are able to, if they're, you're into ice climbing, you can do, st um, you know, way more pitches within a shorter walk of the road. Um, I guess kind of the point we, of that question is, is um, like, do you target your messaging differently for different zones based on who you think is, is the majority recreation type user there? Yeah, no, not, not so much. We do try to acknowledge that, um, we have a, a very wide mix of, of users mm -hmm. and so we're not just targeting skiers. We do think that we do a good job with the weather um, component of that. We like to uh, try to address um, the timing of weather particularly. So um, what frequently can happen is a system can come in hard and fast, you know, in the afternoon and people may not fully um understand like what exactly it's like to be exposed on a ridge uh, in an 80 mile an hour wind when they started out from their car it was only 35 miles an hour and 
you know, 20 degrees and now it's sub-zero. And we've certainly seen lots of accidents and uh, fatalities due to that sort of um, weather event. So it's uh, it's a mix. We don't have snowmobilers to, to address the forecast mm-hmm. too, but we do follow a pretty typical, I think among avalanche centers, tiered approach. So, you know, we're giving a tier one information, which is just the danger rating into, um, you know, other data at the bottom, which is tier five data, which is just raw data. So that's all available on the internet or on our website with, um, you know, travel advice and, and targeted specifics about where, um, where you would find good skiing. So trying to tell people not just where to go, but, or where not to go, but tell them where they would find, um, you know, good skiing or riding. Um, we really have, uh, followed a lot of the research of Pascal Hagali and others about how, um, people find and use that information. And I think, uh, I think it's led to a better product and, um, you know, doing as much as we can on that front. And I think, uh, we'll see what the future brings. Um, certainly various media platforms have provided uh, a good outreach, um, to, to other folks. Um, you know, I think we still, um, you know, the concerns that I keep me up at night is, um, folks who just have no idea that there's avalanches and we still have those folks who, uh, you know, a rescue where some guys went up the benign Lionhead trail, which is on a ridge. And they decided, um, to go down through Tuckerman ravine thinking it would be a shortcut. This was a early season snowpack. So lots of, lots of ice cliffs still showing, you know, and, um, these guys walk down the trail and walk the trail, of course, traverses a 35, 40 degree slope, which is a classic start zone. And they triggered an avalanche and got swept off these ice cliffs with traumatic injuries, you know, and they just didn't know. Mm. They didn't know what, really even where they were. Um, so, you know, it's those people where you're like, okay, how do we reach them? We've got these kiosks at every pinch point, you know, with avalanche hazard. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, you just do your best and, and uh, try to message to as many potential, um, well, as many users as you can with as many, uh, wide a skill set as you can imagine. There's something for everybody, really, in that forecast. And, um, you know, I believe that's true of most avalanche centers these days. Um, you know, you just you just got to make sure that they find find that information. And that's the part we don't really have control over is, like, is someone going to Google search for forecast center? Maybe. Mm-hmm. About avalanches, or they might actually more likely to see some um, viral post, you know, or some news report um, that, or or a dog running around with an avalanche rescue vest on, and uh, or a ski patroller. So, those are some of the ways we're um, trying to reach those folks. And is the ski patrol are the ski patrollers on duty all winter? Or is that more of a springtime thing when the, you know, kind of when the crowds start to show up? 
Yeah, though they're starting again this year a month earlier than mm -hmm. they have historically. Um, so I think that's going to continue to help. Um, it's uh, you know there's a lot of a lot of work to be done up there beyond just forecasting and field work. There's um, a lot of logistical things that happen. And it's really great to have those guys out uh, messaging the people and just having a face to face con con. Uh, contact with a snow ranger coming back from digging a pit or, or skiing a line is uh can be can be helpful for folks sure frank what are some common myths about avalanches on the east coast well i guess the primary one is they don't happen <laughs> <laughs> i've got some pictures to show folks that, that think that's true yep um i think the size of avalanches is often under um just not necessarily respected enough uh -huh. um and i think anyone who's been caught and carried and in, in anything even a d1 slough you know you can quickly realize that uh you know you might not be coming up for air um and you might be getting pushed into something um bad and uh you know we a lot of people do get this speaking of sloughs so it's probably a bad example people do underestimate the um or um you know seem to equate wet loose slough events that we get just with great frequency their ski are triggered and they just make these slough channels and you know it's like oh i tangled an avalanche and technically yes they did but um you know, it's not necessarily the same as like if you were in some zone where a big wet loose on some big sunny face and no one skied yet. Um, that experience would be quite different. We have um, folks not always getting totally accurate feedback from the terrain when they're in it or misinterpreting it. Um, you know, I think hard slabs that we get are particularly brutal. Um, we have these. Uh, you know, it's generally direct action avalanche regime, but we do have super cold weather and crust layers that can cause problems. And um, and uh, that's super hard to forecast in our spatially diverse terrain where a lot of times our most active paths will sweep out those crusts so that they're not a big, they're not a problem anymore, but you know, more benign or lower angled slopes, um, you know, they may not, they don't get swept out, right? And then they just sit there. Um, one one thing, um, example I'm thinking specifically occurred, I want to say it was March, probably 2014-ish, somewhere on our website, um, you know, the summit snow cone or a summit um, cone, so to speak, of Mount Washington is like this uh, kind of round cone that sits on top of that plateau. It gets heavily wind scoured on the west side, and a lot of that snow gets pushed around to the leeward on the east face there. We call it the east face snow fields or the easties, very classic um, place for people to go. When the auto road opens in droves, they'll go and, and ski this you know what is essentially it is avalanche terrain probably 800 or a thousand feet of vert down to the to a 
to the flat to the alpine garden plateau area um and this particular day you know um we had a, a moderate danger rating it was a first day of warming we had had a an ice cross that had been problematic months before um, but had been largely swept out this is when we we're still microscale forecasting um that was like six weeks prior to that um some you know very cold temps in between that time um, from its development. I think that crust may have actually developed in January, so it's probably more closer to a couple months later. Um, and this day was crawling with, it was a Saturday, it was crawling with people. You know, this was, we were on track to have 1,500 people or more in Tuckerman Ravine. And, um, you know, we were doing our thing and talks, messaging to people, and we got a report of a large avalanche on the summit. And as it turns out, um, you know, it was quite, it was a large avalanche as it gets here, you know, D2, maybe D2 and a half. It's not a lot of vertical fall, but, you know, four foot crown line, a couple hundred meters wide. And someone was out with a camera taking pictures right when it, right when it happened. Um, they caught the flow. Um, this hard slab moved a rock the size of a, um, like an MG, mm. Mazmiata. Um, it barely missed seven people skinning right across the base, four people above who triggered it. And, you know, there are people everywhere. Um, you know, large debris field deeper than my probe. Um, it would have been lights out for those seven steers there was just they would, it was a, a deep burial situation um turns out it was triggered by the party kind of at the top there who um, had quite a quite an experience um witnessing that so you know the myth of that we don't have large avalanches well you know okay yeah maybe size size doesn't always matter does it at least that's what i've heard Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it sounds like you, you mostly deal with with uh wind slab problems and then you know kind of wet loose wet wet slab avalanche problems in the springtime imagine um you know is it you see some persistent slab problems there we see like wind slabs that want to turn to persistent slabs mm -hmm. and then typically what happens is they get crushed out by the subsequent slab that steps down Sure. and wipes them out and it might wipe out the crust along with it um that that's been generating these facets um you know in areas some areas are most heavily used areas the snow gets super thick so those slabs get buried mm -hmm. you know along with them the trigger points mm -hmm. um certainly not always the case you know um they they can really linger and uh you know one of our more well our most recent two avalanche fatalities were based on uh you know just well one one in april three years ago was three inches of new snow <laughs> generating a slab that was uh you know two or three feet thick and uh, the skier skied over a frozen waterfall you know that created a fence spot with a little bit of faceting on that ice bulge um and that was the trigger on a you know not a super hard crust bed surface very little faceting that we we couldn't observe any faceting um on that so but it had been sitting around for a couple of few days so 
generally that was a wind slab, but it was a terrain feature that was the culprit. And I believe it's there's some fasting right on that ice mm-hmm. bulge. Um, so yeah, it is generally direct action. I think we could reduce the vast majority of incidents that occur if folks just respected just the red flags, you know, the classic five red flags. Um, and just wait, just wait a bit. It'll get pasted on and pinned down by settlement. Um, it's tempting though to get out and try and get freshies during the during the turn, and and that's where um, folks, you know, including myself, have, have run awry. Um, it's just very it's steep terrain. Yeah, Frank, care to care to recount a close call that you've had up in that terrain, or what led to that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I was in Huntington ravine with another forecaster a while back and, you know, I was pretty, pretty fascinated at the time and trying to convey, um, how, um, slough action builds our, um, some of our slabs, you know, technically these are wind slabs, but that's not in a, in a real traditional sense. You know, we don't have a cordis or sorry, a cornice and then a wind rotor and a pillow below it because our uh, ridges are all kind of rounded, you know, mm-hmm. and very, very steep. They get to 50 or 60 degrees and, and more on these ice climbs, but the snow just sloughs down just continually and uh, builds these thick slabs that cause um, problems. So uh, myself and, uh, and Ryan picked our way up during a storm. This is, previous Ryan um, up to uh, up in Huntington Ravine to try to um, capture some footage of this process going on on Pinnacle Gully and uh, it's very cold kind of late in the day a um, couple of uh, you know heuristics involved there were were this kind of goal-oriented situation which was uh, you know rather than like the goal of trying to get the summit or get these good turns. It was really like, I really want to capture this because it's going on, you know, right now. Um, the cold led to some hasty decision-making, a little lateness of the day. And uh, on our way out, um, you know, we came up with a plan of how to, how to pitch it out. This is a considerable day. And um, we had managed to pick our way up to where we were by with really minimal hazard through the rocks. And, uh, of the fan area and um we were going to ski out through this zone that was um a little more wind sheltered and much softer snow and um so we came up with a plan to pitch it out so we could have eyes on the entire time um i picked my my first um place to stop and um we both agreed to that I quickly skied to it and then I realized, wait a minute, I'm not going to be able to see him on the next pitch as I approached that spot. So I went ahead and made a couple more turns around this corner and basically neglected the fact that what was now, um, you know, or what had been this nice concave lower angle um, slope probably lower 30s was now is actually adjacent to this big slab of rock that had had sloughing action building the slab on it and it was steeper it was up near 40 or more and so you know the slope cracked and 
ripped along the base of the, the cliff there and um and carried me and uh you know it was d one and a half or whatever maybe a little smaller leading me towards a, a what i thought would be a nasty terrain trap fortunately i got i hit one boulder which bumped me out of the flow a little bit and then another boulder which bumped me further and uh i was just buried to mid thigh mm. um and we skied out after that humbled for sure right it sounds like you all um pick up the pieces when things don't go so well for folks up there um whether they're climbing or skiing or just hiking around um you've you've been involved in some recoveries the last well through throughout your time there uh maybe you could share a couple stories of of avalanche recoveries there sure yeah um a couple jump out you know we've had a couple that are worth mentioning i think um to listeners who may not understand the consequences of a long, long sliding fall i think two of those have been um we've had a bunch of those but a couple significant ones one person fell in tux and slid down uh, after midwinter uh melt event rain a melt event into a waterfall hall um, um these things happen routinely in, in that climate this arctic maritime climate we get um those rain events and the refreezes he fell and popped down into a hole and we could not recover him um, he was about 75 feet down and then storm and and uh cold weather just sealed the hole up again he's like 30 foot it was a 30 foot snowpack so so that was that was pretty grim um other folks will just um you know we've had a number of long sliding fall incidents where the snow um, freezes quickly due to solar uh the sun moving you know around the aspect change and um the shady slope turns shady and people slide um those uh those are particularly tragic because they're so avoidable like just recognizing that if you fall on a truly knife hard surface you're not going to self-arrest if it's 35 or 40 degrees mm -hmm. you're just not just <laughs> physically you cannot do it you know, i don't care how good a mountaineer you are um because it's just uh, your the ice it's just not going to work and you go too fast um and then the two avalanche, uh, the most recent avalanche recoveries that were <clears throat> had some good learning points were, um, you know, uh, in um, April, the uh, three years ago, um, super experienced backcountry skier um, was doing a multiple ravine day, had skied on Huntington Ravine. A lot of people were out skiing that day. It was a uh, it was a good. Um, um you know sunny warm day after a period of stormy weather and rhyming conditions and a few inches of of new snow um, that can yield pretty good turns quite often without a lot of hazard this uh this man went up um and skied at huntington's and went to raymond's cataract which is a pretty ephemeral ski line because it's a there's a big waterfall that you're skiing over it needs not only good freezing temperatures but a 
pretty good snow year, which we had that year. And um, <clears throat> so as he dropped uh, down the into the funnel, the terrain funnel there, that's where he skied over uh, the thin spot in the slab over the over the waterfall and uh, triggered a, a slide that pushed him down into a steep stream stream drainage and buried him. Um, um, his head was like 70 centimeters below the surface. Feet were over six feet, probably like, yeah, six, about six feet down. Mm. Um, I um, had a, someone reported that crown to me in Raymond's um, late in the day, about two or so. Um, and, and I, we'd had one human triggered avalanche earlier that morning, pretty harmless thing. And, you know, they reported that, uh, that crowned me and I was like, oh, this is not a natural avalanche today. There's no way. Um, so I responded um, with a reco and uh, um, dog got down there to, to get, got into the gully. Um, this was just basically my, my thought was like, I'm going to go and probably see tracks skiing out of this thing, uh, get to the edge of the stream bed, pull out my beacon and lo and behold, I got a, I got a signal and uh so got up to him got a probe strike right away um about a about a meter down and i uh, just started digging radioed for for help it was a thursday there were not many people around um and finally uh started getting close to him um and started hearing moaning from from below the snow um, below the snow and uh you know, exposed his head and lo and behold, he was, he was alive. Wow. Um, breathing. Um, so what I did not know at the time was that a webcam across the valley had captured, um, the crown between, uh, you know, occurring the avalanche happening between 12 and 1205. The timestamp showed, and this was at this point, you know, um, to 220 i believe Whoa. i recall so over two hours later um so i continued digging help arrived um we got down to his legs and um started trying to come up with an extrication plan there were just uh me another snow ranger a caretaker and a couple of gentlemen who had just summited and they were trying to help um Doug continued digging. You know, he had one of his skis was still on. He's thrashing around, not really, um, not really responsive to questions about whether or not he was alone, whether there was, you know, someone else involved. Um, uh, not generally responsive to any commands at all to stay still. Um, he had, um, you know, we tried to get him to stay in place, and he was. Um, I wouldn't say combative, but certainly struggling, you know, his reptile brain had kicked in and, and he wanted out of that hole. Um, of course, as soon as he stood up, um, you know, he arrested due to the flow of blood, um, you know, acidotic blood in his legs. Mm. And uh, so circumrescue collapse or uh, basically as it happens around these deep hypothermia or quick, you know, whether it's snow immersion or water immersion, and uh, that's what happened here. So 
we started chest compressions and um, packaged them the best we could, provided intermittent um, CPR um, to the piston bully, loaded them up and got them to the, to the paramedics and the flight crew. And uh, they worked on them for, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes and, um, and called it, uh, called them right there, uh, unfortunately. So um, ended up had some protocol changes in the state of New Hampshire based on that event and uh, paper written, um, trying to kind of continue to hammer that message home to folks that um, you know hypothermia patients have a pretty good chance of survival if you can get them to the right hospital, and it's generally not going to be your local hospital. It's going to be a place with uh, that does thoracic surgery routinely and uh, ideally has a, an ECMO center that's fully staffed. So in our area, that in most most areas, it's going to be a level one hospital, you know, big hospital. Mm-hmm. And uh, the point being, like these folks um, have a like a fifty fifty chance of survival, even if you're doing CPR for hours on end. You're just circulating blood, and at that point, their body is, is refrigerated. Their cell tissues not damp dying the brain's not not dying um you got time and it's worthwhile to to make that effort and spend those resources to uh to do what you can do to get them to a to a center where basically the ECMO they remove the blood from the patient clean it of all that byproduct of hypercarbia and put it back in and uh clean all the basically the toxins out of their blood warm it put it back in and and uh, the literature shows some pretty impressive recoveries of you know four hours and more even of continuous CPR um, or a thumper you know or a, something that you can put on those folks um, so the avalanche world sees um, what I think two to three percent of the fatalities are are called hypothermia Mm-hmm. Majority of them are asphyxia, right, and um, followed by trauma. Mm-hmm. I think that that very much depends on on where you are. It is, a, you know, kind of a small data set. Um, certainly, in in our neck of the woods, with 15, 16 avalanche fatalities through time. But um, so ours are more trauma. But the point with the hypothermia is that you know these folks, if if they don't survive, they're perfect candidates for or uh, providing organs for people as well because they're young fit and well preserved (laughs) so that one was uh pretty um you know it was a learning for the rescue community in general and uh, a case study of you know why we make those efforts uh with folks and these immersion incidents can happen with a tree well or falling in a creek in the spring um those are things that have happened for us uh, in other places. And in my opinion, the protocol has been very unclear for people about, um, you know, if your, your woofer instructor says, treat these people gently. Well, what does that look like? Do I ever handle anyone roughly? Right. No, I never do that in any case, you know. Seems so, like keeping the blood you know, moving is the, the most important thing. Yeah, and keeping them once once they arrest, that's what you want to do. What really you have to keep in mind is treating them gently is probably not going to involve 
um, you restraining that person. Mm. If you're an EMT, you know, you can't do that unless you're a cop, right? And probably it's not going to help anyway if someone's kind of in that reptile state, kind of, um, you know, not responsive to commands, they're still going to struggle. And that's probably still going to trigger arrest. The main point is you just need to be prepared for that arrest, that cardiac arrest, and know that you've got time. You know, if you've got limited resources, let them arrest. Check their pulse for a, for a full minute to confirm it's not just a really slow pulse. Make sure that they, they actually are pulseless or it's a disorganized activity, you know, mm-hmm. VT or whatever. And um, and make your plan, you know, and do do this uh, intermittent CPR is um, it, it can really work and it saves efforts for the rescuers and it can, um, you know, rescuers can slide a litter and just one person can be on top of the guy person given given uh, chest compressions for 10 minutes and then get off the litter and keep carrying them. Right. So there's there's a lot of like intermittent treatments that that can be done, and I know it's this very small um, segment of of all the accidents, but um, you know you always want to provide the best care you can. And uh, you know certainly with people skiing solo and people out and about, um, you know in the backcountry more and more um, these hypothermia. Um, incidences uh are gonna happen and uh you know it's it's good to know that um you know don't give up until it's completely useless and in a level one center <laughs> with a team of uh people that can uh, can do a little more than uh, your standard flight crew or paramedics sure so that that was uh that was one uh kind of uh impactful and um uh, you know Good learning for me um, and then another one um, just happened recently last that was last year actually february start of february um, kind of right at the right in the middle of that period of time in the u.s where um you know it was just nuking and i believe out west it was nuking on a persistent slab problem and for a period we had uh, i can't remember maybe you remember the 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 rate of fatalities but it was absurd like one a day for a while and um this was happening during yeah and uh you know this uh ian was uh skiing skiing alone and what you know he knew was going to be rowdy terrain on the east side pretty thin snowpack um we had dropped to low um i think for the first or second day after some wind loading from the south, um, pretty small um, slabs possible, um, but he was in a what is probably one of the worst terrain traps. Uh, he had another funnel, the Amanusa Ravine, that uh, starts in a nice gentle slope, gentle wide slope, and gets narrower and uh, becomes constricted to oh, 100 feet across. And then even further, 50 feet across, and then it dumps into basically uh, it's a cascade in the summer that ends in a pool of water, which this time of year was frozen over. Um, in this case, uh, the rescue 
was complicated by the fact that he was not reported missing for 24 hours. We had no idea even which side of the mountain he was on when that was reported. Um, this is outside of our zone of rescue, typically on the west side, but we responded with the fishing game um, once his car was ultimately located. Um, part of the reason it was hard finding his car that um, after he had gone skiing that evening, the next day um, we had a nor'easter that brought a good bit of snow. Forget the the amounts, but quite a bit of snow. We had gone to high that day on on other aspects, and uh, his car was buried in a parking lot that was unplowed. And that that was another thing that led to the kind of the delay in, in finding him. Um, but in this case, it probably wouldn't have mattered. Um, he was skiing alone and got pushed into just a horrendous terrain trap. Uh, you know, it was a D one that was a uh, debris. 15 feet wide, unfortunately, is piled up against uh, overhanging buttress, which buried him further. And uh, when I got the beacon signal, my lowest number was like 3.8 or 4 meters. Mm. Um, so, you know, we carry long probes. The longest we carry is 320 centimeters. So a team of seven of us had to um, basically lower the level of snow. We basically just like excavated down over a meter before we got a pro uh, positive probe strike um one sidebar to that from in the rescue side of things is i had used the reco to find him which uh worked out really well it was considerable avalanche danger that day and i was in the path and uh really nice to have your pot um, beacon in your pocket just powered up um and using another instrument and uh I would think uh, just generally a good idea for avalanche rescuers to consider that if you got a spare beacon, keep one on you, use the other. If you're really put, putting yourself in any sort of, if you're reducing your margin, which you often are in these rescue events. Yeah, great use of the RECO there, huh? Yeah, yeah. And uh, in this case, the, you know, the later models such as we have, uh, you can flip the switch to listen for 457 mm -hmm. as well as... Uh, the tab, the reco tabs, and and still electronic. So, and at that time, you you sort of knew this was a recovery, I would imagine, um, and not a rescue, we, just based on the time scale. Or I mean, we did not know yet. Uh -huh, okay. um, at that time, um, we did not have the information about when he had skied. Okay. Um, so there was some thought that he might have been out in that storm that night when it went to high. Um, so we were still, um, you know, cautiously optimistic okay. at that point. It seemed like it was going to be potentially a recover, recovery because it had been a while. And I think any unwitnessed avalanche typically goes that way. Yeah. But, um, you know, given the experience of Nick, you know, being buried for two hours and potentially living, you know, like people, we didn't even know he'd been caught in an avalanche, right? Um, could have been not we were we were thinking so because we had just been at high avalanche danger right yeah so we're thinking that's what what the issue was um but it turns out it was the day before that on a low danger day mm. he triggered a pocket probably on that um you know a little faceted pocket over an ice bulge is what we speculate at that point it had been there was no crown investigation possible after having gone to 
having multiple naturals, you know, um, bury another natural avalanche and buried him further. Sure. And then there were several other avalanche paths that um, crossed the path that we were searching, um, you know, trees, trees and the debris and everything. So, um, so, so in both these incidents, uh, you know, solo skiers, I mean, I feel like we're seeing that more and more. Um, that people enjoy getting out by themselves and going on long alpine missions. And, and, uh, do you have any advice for people who enjoy doing that? And, and, you know, would you say, don't, don't go skiing by yourself <laughs> or are there some things that people can do to maybe hedge their bets if they're going out by themselves? Yeah. I mean, it's, I can't state the obvious advice um I'm in good conscience you know it's uh i get it you know on on days like that with low hazard or any sort of day where you're thinking you've got a handle on the snow you know i've done it who doesn't you've probably done it you mm -hmm. ski alone right mm -hmm. you know you're you know your margin shrinking though right and that's always good to think about and i certainly have a check-in check-out person and i think that's always wise um, because there's lots of things that'll kill you besides just an avalanche. Um, if you get buried on witness, like there is a very good chance you're not going to survive that. Um, but you can hit a tree, you know, you can fall in a tree well, you can just break your leg. There's a ton of other things. So having one single point person that's going to do something when you don't call them when you're back at the trailhead at a pre-designated time, super important. Not just some person who thinks you should be home by now, right? That, that leads to delays and alert. So um, that would be that would be my advice if you're choosing to ski alone. And then obviously, the other part is just know that um, you know uncertainty is always going to exist out there, and uh, you only have to be wrong once. So um, see if you can round up a partner, or keep it mellower, or you know do other things that can mitigate your exposure um, or pick up another sport that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks for sharing those experiences that you've had there. Um, unfortunately ending in, in tragic results, but um, hopefully people can glean some lessons learned uh, from those accidents. Frank, what are, yeah. what are you up to this season? It's a, uh, I hear that you're calling not from New Hampshire, but from Wyoming. Yes, that's right. I am doing um, what we call in the Forest Service a detail, so a four-month um, detail behind the director of the Avalanche Center who's set to retire here at, in the Bridger Teton. Um, Bob Comey uh, recently tied the knot again and uh, is going to retire soon and, and off to fun things skiing powder and not getting up at no dark 30 to forecast and uh, i'm here to fill in behind him and bridge the gap till the next director um starts here and uh yeah so pretty pretty excited about that to be um in the in a different zone and meeting new folks and learning some new terrain learning from the um just deep and wide knowledge base that's here in the Tetons at a really just an amazing um, mountain range. 
Um, so really lucky to have this opportunity and, uh, and be here. Yeah. Well, congrats on the detail there. And, and, um, are you thinking, is your mindset any different? Are you approaching it in any different ways than you would, uh, forecasting for, or forecasting at Mount Washington? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so far I've written a few forecasts and, um, it is, uh, you know, we're really seasoned here, real thin snowpack. Um, I, uh, you know, we're watching for the development of uh, any sort of early weak layers with these cold snaps. So far, everything's pinned down. We've had some rain even up to 9,000 feet. Moving forward, the, you know, my main goal is to take advantage of the uh, knowledge, you know, local knowledge. There's so many folks, you know, we've got so many experienced avalanche professionals here. It's they're thick as thieves. So um, I want to absorb as much from these folks and, and uh, facilitate, you know, good forecasts. Um, so, yeah, and just it's a data rich environment, too, and piecing that all together and, you know, helping folks, uh, you know, giving them as much good information as they can to make their best decisions. Um, that'll be my goal here. Same as, same as in Mount Washington. Awesome. Well, Frank, I appreciate you swinging by the show today and, and sharing some of your insights and experiences, uh, throughout your career. Yeah. Great talking to you, Caleb. Yeah. We'll see you out there. Cheers. All right. Thanks. Well, thanks for listening to the show, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Frank. I should add that uh, since recording, Frank has been offered and accepted the job of director of the Bridger Teton National Forest Avalanche Center out of Jackson. So, um, you know, I'm sure it's a bittersweet change for Frank um, as he continues to uh, steer the ship of the Bridger Teton Avalanche Center. Uh, after his detail had been completed, um, but I'm sure he'll miss the Mount Washington Valley as well. So congrats on the job there, Frank, and uh, all the best to you. Musical tracks on today's episode were created and produced and recorded by Age Diamante. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Check out Mike's website at www.miket.com. Don't forget to give us a follow on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and that's the best way to keep up to date on the newest releases of episodes. Subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to it on, and don't forget to tell a friend about the show. If you got any feedback for us, you can send it to the Avalanche Hour podcast at gmail.com or fill out a contact form from our somewhat neglected website www.theavalanchehour.com if you're looking to help out and want to kick a little bit of cash a little donation our way you can find a donation button there as well make sure to tune in to our next episode on tuesday march 15th when our guest host sean zimmerman wall will be interviewing hector peralta can't wait for that one sean until next time stay tuned stay safe Keep having fun out there. Cheers.